Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Okay, so we pick up in Genesis 8 tonight, and it occurred to me, so if we go back through Genesis, we have Genesis 1, God makes order out of chaos, and he creates the world and everything in it. Genesis 2, he makes human beings, and he makes the Sabbath for them. Genesis 3, humans get deceived. Genesis 4, humans deceive themselves. Genesis 5, we start looking for the Messiah with the genealogies. Remember those and the different names. And then Genesis 6, we start seeing sons of God or demons trying to corrupt the line of the Messiah and creating giants on the earth. And God says, okay, enough of this. We're going to start from scratch. And we're going to start with this guy named Noah who is walking with God. So the first real example of a godly person because Adam really didn't get that distinction. Um, Abel got killed, um, but we see this kind of person that pleases God in, in his own way called Noah. Genesis 7, we got to God flooding the earth and how that all works. So it's almost like now I imagine like a movie trailer and the whole planet's covered in water. That's where we left our hero floating on the water. And you can see the sloshing waters and the raging storms and everything. And this camera zooms in on this little black floating thing on the face of the entire planet. It's just a little speck of brown. And the ark is lost at sea, floating about in the vast ocean. This must be a two-part. Yeah, this is part two. But that's where we pick up our story is that they're there. Um... I think it's interesting in verse 1 of Genesis 8 that it starts with then. Like, the end of the story was verse 7. Is the world's destroyed, it's flooded out, there's no life that's left on it. Um, and then God remembered Noah. And the word remembered is an anthropomorph anthropomorphism, which is ascribing to God an attribute that humans have, or using human language to describe the character of God. Obviously, God didn't forget Noah was out there. Or that would be kind of funny. God's like, oh, shoot, Noah. You know, which would be God reflecting us, but that's not the case. God never actually forgot Noah. The word remembered there is zakar. Other ways to translate that are to mark, to recognize, to be mindful of, to think over. And it's really similar to when God hovered over the face of the deep. So once again, the water is covering the planet like on the first in chapter one. And God hovers over it and kind of does it. Only this time there's a focus and God remembers or considers Noah floating on the water, which I think is kind of cool. God considers not just Noah here, but notice the rest of the sentence and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. I think it's kind of cool that God loves animals too. And he's not just remembering Noah here. He's remembering all these animals that were with Noah. And God made a wind pass over the earth. <laughs> this is also should be appropriately translated. God 
starts the earth in such a way that there are wind currents and I'm sure it's like a global wind that starts moving things around. Uh, this is not to pass some sort of gas, right? Um, which is again, very inappropriate to think that of God. But if you're looking for all the possible translations, that might be one way to think of it. Um, but God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. So this is moving our story forward. Verse two, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. Remember, those are the two things the Bible listed that made the flood in the first place. So they exhaust themselves. Um, and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. So we have 150 days of the waters rising and then we have 150 days of them kind of subsiding. Again, that's a massive flood. That's a lot of water and a lot of places for things to go. God knows how to stop even the greatest of storms. Uh, the biggest problems to us are not to God. I thought that was kind of an interesting thought. God doesn't necessarily, the size of the storm doesn't matter to God because it's all God's. And especially when we look at our lives and we see things that may or may not um, be problems to us to God they're just not an issue and he can make even the floods of the entire planet go away verse 4 then the ark rested in the seventh month in the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat um, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month in the 10th month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains were seen so the Mount Ararat or the mountains of Ararat, it doesn't say that it's on Mount Ararat. It says it's in the mountains of Ararat. Ararat itself is about 17,000 feet high. That's taller than almost anything in the continental Rockies. So you got to go up to Alaska to get higher mountains than that. So I don't think we often think of Turkey as high mountain ranges, but we're talking frosted top um, mountain ranges when you get into those mountains. They're not exactly uh, hospitable at today <clears throat> I like the phrase that the ark rested I just thought it was neat that the ark's been at hard at work for a hundred for 300 days and now the ark rested um, like it had been working and it had been it had been it had been doing its service to save humanity and animal kind on the planet um, there are several different places and throughout history there are uh, several books that have been written on where the ark landed and where it kind of was. It's one of those great mysteries. I always thought it would make a great Indiana Jones movie, like Raiders of the Lost Ark 2, but it would... Anyways. <clears throat> um, if you put an ark on top of the mountain, another thought here is that that's not the greatest place for Noah to have landed on the planet. He could have kept floating for a while and landed in like the fertile Mesopotamian River Valley, and that would have been a good place to like stop your floating around. Um, but it's a good place if you want to preserve that ark for future generations, to leave it on top of a mountain range that hasn't yet frozen, and then let the new winded water cycles of the planet refreeze it, it would be a really cool thing if at the end of days we actually found the ark, like this really strong evidence of early biblical history being right. So, um, <clears throat> One of the places that I thought was kind of cool where you see mention of, of the Ark of Noah is in Marco Polo's journals. So as he's traveling east and trying to document the different people groups, 
in book one, chapter three, he says, and you must know that this is in the country of Armenia that the Ark of Noah exists on the top of a certain great mountain, on the summit of which snow is so constant that no one can ascend for the snow never melts and is constantly added by new falls. So I thought, I think it's interesting that even by the time of Marco Polo, it's just assumed that God's, that the Ark of Noah is up in those mountains. And even the people of Turkey say that. However, a lot like other parts of the world, Turkey's pretty much shut down expeditions. They don't want people up in those hills looking for arks all the time. And so they've kind of shut that down and they did quite some time ago. Verse six, so it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up the earth. And he sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded on the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to the ark into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. I think we see here, and this is going to be true throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that happen where I think God's trying to give us a picture and trying to give us insights into our walk with him and our faith. So when Noah gets up and he sends out a, a raven, which is typically black, and a dove, which is... Um, typically white he's sending out a black bird and a white bird so there's it's not like he's sending out a bird he sends out two birds he's also other two key differences between a raven and a dove a raven likes to feast on dead stuff right it's a scavenger bird doves like to feast on live stuff which is why doves would be considered a clean animal later in the new testament you can give a dove as a sacrifice it's because they eat plants and and living things but ravens don't do that at all in fact if the whole world had just been flooded a few hundred days ago, those waters as they receded would be giving up decayed flesh by the millions of bodies all over the planet Earth. The raven would be at its own feast, loving life. So the raven clearly doesn't return because the raven goes out into the world and finds a a smorgasbord and loves life and just feasts on the dead stuff that's out there. The dove, however, goes out into the world and all they see is dead stuff and they come back home to God and to Noah. And I think that's a cool spiritual image. Non-believers go out into the world and they love it. The world is full of all the greatest things they can find and it's just like Templeton the rat at the, at the state fair, right? <laughs> but doves, Christians, clean, holy people, I think, the, the closer you get to God, the more you go out into the world and you just see a bunch of crap that doesn't really show a lot of appeal. The only thing that really satisfies is the living word, the, the waters that are, that are living waters. Jesus said to the woman at the well, I'll give you waters that will, that will um, give eternal life. And there are people that they look at the world and the world just doesn't seem to have much to offer. It's wanting. And I think that's kind of a cool spiritual image of the raven and the dove. And when they go out into the world, the two different reactions they give. That said, I don't know if that's what the author's trying to say here, but there's going to be a lot of spots in the Old Testament where we see people reading it and kind of seeing things like that in it and and doing it. So there's a spiritual truth truth here uh, that we can walk on, but I'll keep going. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark himself. And he waited yet another seven days And he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, 
and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So even if all those plants were dead, they seem to be rising very quickly again. So almost like God's doing a new thing. Because if you think about this, there's only a few days and there's an olive branch that's alive and healthy. So God must be doing something miraculous to repopulate the earth with plants um, is one way to read that. And other people read that and say, well, there might have been some areas that weren't flooded. That's hard to buy into it because if you've got, if you needed three months for the waters to go away, that's more of a global deluge than a local flood, right? Also, why would the dove come back if it couldn't find us? Yeah. So the third time it goes out, again, there, there's some quick things going on here. Uh, so he waited, verse 12, so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So the dove's like finding places to nest now, where before it just found a branch, now it's finding trees and things it can rest in. So it came to pass in the 601st year and first month and first day of the month that the waters were dried up from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and indeed the surface of the ground was dry and in the second month on the 27th day of the month the earth was dried. So you do a little math and Noah and his family were in the ark for a little over a year. They went in when he was 600. They came out when he was 601. Um, 370 days uh, is the amount of time they spent in the ark. So that, for some people, causes some problems. How do you live on a boat for a year? Um, yet there were people that, that have done that throughout history. We've had people that uh, are on the boat all the time. In the, in the age of imperialism, boys would get put onto boats because they would grow into men, and the older sailors would grow old and die because they'd be at sea for long, long amounts of time. Um, that said, the... the uh, they would, have been ex they would have been pretty much at the end of their food sources. By the end of a year, it'd be hard to imagine this boat holding much more food than that. Um, so God even knew about how long this thing would be because the boat, the boat would have been about the right size. Verse 15, then God spoke to Noah saying, go out into the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you and bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they might abound on the earth and be fruitfully and fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal and every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal. Remember the clean animals there were seven each of those and of every clean bird and offer, offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah's heart after a trial was to praise God. And the first thing after a year on the ark, you'd think there would be other first things he could have done. He could have started building his house. He could have been looking for fresh water. He could have um, started to take apart the ark to use the wood from the ark for different things. Um, they could have started traveling and looking for a good place to settle down. Um, but the first thing he does is he makes an altar and his heart is to praise God. Again, we see why God loved Noah so much. The scale of the sacrifices are also kind of, this isn't our first sacrifice. Remember Cain and Abel did sacrifices, but the kind of sacrifice here is really interesting. God's not, give, or Noah's not sacrificing out of the bounty of his crops or his cattle herds like Cain and Abel were. They were tithing out of their wealth. Noah's giving, and think of the scale of this, 
with so few animals on the earth, he's risking extinction by sacrificing these, these animals. And if there were seven of them, even if he lets two or four go just to go repopulate the earth, he's probably going to keep two of those so he can start breeding his cattle and his livestock, which means with the seventh one, he's sacrificing that to God. The seventh one wouldn't have had a spouse. So it's almost like this was kind of planned from the beginning, but you think of how big of a sacrifice that was for Noah. And one out of seven is even more than tithe. Um, Noah's really trusting that God's going to provide for him in the same way that God just kept him alive on a boat for a year um, and is going to restart earth with it. And he's trusting that God's going to multiply what's left of those animals, which I think is a really cool thing. God can also then, that might be a lesson we take away, God can multiply really quickly. Um, sacrifice should cost something or it's not a sacrifice. And God, that's a common theme throughout the Bible. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, uh, David is going to give a sacrifice, remember, and they, and he wants to pay for it. And, and the, I forget the guy's name, but he says, oh, you don't have to pay me for it. And David says, quote, I'll surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto my Lord God of that which doth cost me nothing. And that's King James for, I'm not going to make a sacrifice to God if it doesn't cost me something. If it doesn't hurt a little bit, then it's not really putting God first. And so you're only giving what's comfortable for you to give. And I think that's an interesting approach to giving and sacrifice, that it should be something where you're like, wow, that's, that's money I could use on other things, but I'm going to give it to God because I trust that God can multiply that. God can do things with that money that I can't do. Um, and it's a super tough thing, for, I think, for pastors to talk about on a Sunday morning because as soon as they talk about it and then they pass an offering plate, there's this kind of this sense of, oh, you're just saying that because you want me to give money to the church. But that's, I think, a principle in the Bible that's pretty true no matter whether or not you're in the church. It's a biblical principle that sacrifice is part of how we start our relationship with God. We show God we're willing to make a commitment, and he does it too. There's different types of offerings in Leviticus. Um, and if he took these animals and he offered burnt offerings on the altar, notice that they're getting called burnt offerings before Leviticus calls them burnt offerings. In other words, there's kinds of offerings that get named in Leviticus that were already happening well before the law was made. And it's just this idea of if God's going to, if we're going to love God, we need to give something to God. And even in, in we see that around the world in different societies. Um, of the different sacrifices, um, the burnt offering was one of consecration or commitment to God. There were sin offerings where you screwed up and you wanted to tell God, I'm really, really, really sorry. Here's an offering. There were peace offerings where you'd come in and say, I want to do this to atone or make peace. But the burnt offering was to signify a commitment that you were going to make to God. It was like when we get saved and we say, I'm going to give my whole life to you, God. That's a burnt offering. I'm going to give the whole life of this sheep or cattle to tell you how much I love you. And it's almost like salvation under Christ is a more appropriate sacrifice than to let some other animal die for you, that we die to ourselves and we give our whole self to God. And that's what a burnt offering was about in Leviticus. Another thought about offerings is, I always thought it was weird that God wanted animals to be killed so that he could, so that we humans could have a closer relationship with him. And we see here there's a principle around sacrifice. It's not that God needs the animal, the God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God's not lacking for wealth. And it's not that God needs 
that from us. I think there's something about sacrifice that makes our heart change so that we're ready for God. So it's not that God is some weird um, kind of animal killing monster in heaven that needs all these beasts to be slaughtered on his behalf. What it does, when Noah does this, he's starting the new world with this idea of commitment to God, that we're going to dedicate and commit. And it's one of the first times that we see humans making commitments to God. So far in the Bible, God's made lots of committed commitments to Adam, to Seth, to Noah, and God's made commitments to humans. But this is one of the first times where Noah says, I'm going to make a commitment to you. And we see that as a pattern for humanity, that God likes that. And in verse 21, and the Lord smelled a sweet aroma. This is a little different than God being pleased with Abel's sacrifice. A sweet uh, aroma in the Hebrew, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word because it has lots of those CHs and it's, you can look it up yourselves. In fact, look all of this up yourselves. Don't trust me. Look it up in the, in whatever sources you want to. Uh, but that sweet, it also goes with, it's used 43 times in the Bible. It is always used in reference to a sacrifice, usually in reference to a burnt sacrifice. What is a sweet savor or a sweet aroma to God is a satisfaction or delight that God has when we give something up that's a little more than what we want to give up for God. And we say, God, I trust you more than I trust myself and my own planning. Jesus was super impressed. And if, if Jesus was God incarnate, we should have seen this in his life, and we do. There's this woman, little old lady, that gives pretty much all she has to the temple. And there's a rich guy who gives a lot more money, but it's not really a sacrifice. And Jesus' attention snaps to this old woman, and he points it out to his disciples, and he says, she's given so much more than that rich man did. And I think that's when God turns to Noah, he sees the same thing. He's like, wow, you're giving up one of your stock animals, one of your clean animals. At the start of the new world, you're going to give up a cattle for me? You're going to give up a, a dove or a sheep, whichever clean animal was sacrificed? Um, and I think that's an amazing thing. Um, he took of every clean animal, so of all, of all of those animals, he took those clean animals and he gave sacrifice. What a beautiful thing from the Lord's perspective that here's a human that actually loves God a lot. Another interpretation, God just liked the smell of barbecue. But I think that's a little simplistic. However, it makes me happy because who smells a barbecue and doesn't think holy moly? Um, but I think there's a spiritual element. The sweet aroma, the sweet savor is not a physical element. It's that God sees that he was right to save Noah and his family. That all of humanity was kind of wasted attempts. But here's a human that's willing to commit back to God. And I think from God's perspective, it made all of creation worth it. Why would God make creation just to wipe it all out and start fresh? Because of Noah. And for today's era, there's going to be a second destruction of the earth, according to Peter, um, and Revelation, and many other passages throughout the New Testament. And God's going to destroy the earth again. Why would God make a planet just to destroy everything on the planet? And the answer is... If you've committed your life to God and you've made yourself a living sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed himself for your sins, he took care of the sin offering, and when you get saved, you take care of the burnt offering, you've got a relationship with God where God sees that and he smells a sweet aroma and says, everything was worth it for Levi and for Katie and for Grant and for 
all the people that he kind of goes after and says, you were worth it because I finally found a human. Solomon says a good friend is like one in a thousand people. So I think God makes all of creation so he can gather him to, up to himself a harvest of a few people that say, you are my relationship with you is more, worth more than anything I have in my life. And looks out at the world like the dove instead of looking at the world like the raven, where the raven is just good to go. I'm going to dive into this world and take everything I can get. And the dove just says, I'm going to reside with you. Until there's a home somewhere else where I can go, I'm going to be with God. Why does that mean so much to God? And that to me is one of the great mysteries of the faith. Why does the God of the universe, if you think of God as powerfully as you can, and knowing that your, in, your finite mind can't even imagine how infinite God is, why does, the, why does Noah, why do you, why do I mean so much to God? Why are we so precious? And the Bible says we are precious. It calls us that. But that, that humility we should have in the face of the love of God for our life, which he gave us our life. It's not even ours to claim. He put breath in our lungs. He knit us together in our mother's womb. And those things aren't even ours to claim. But if we give them to God, he sees that as a sweet aroma. I just thought this was a great verse. I'm sorry I'm going off on it. To commit to God, here's another thought around this, is a human reflection of what God committed to us. So if we want to be in the likeness of God and the image of God both, God makes us one, but when we choose God, we become the other. And we start to, because God gave of himself for us to exist, and when we turn around and give of ourselves or sacrifice something that we have or who we are, we become something that God wanted us to become. We become more like God when we think more of God than about us. Jesus did the same thing. He thought more of us than his own life. And there's this idea that God wants those kinds of partners. He wants to be in conversation with those kinds of humans. I also thought one of the first things, I, I would, remember I listed a few things Noah could have built before an altar? A fence would have been a good thing to build before an altar. Because you think these cows, they're ready to go. But um, apparently the altar was more important. <laughs> Anyways, I just thought, I would build a fence. If I got off the ark, the first thing I would build is some sort of coop for my chickens. You know, I'd, I wouldn't want them to get away because you got to live off those things. Anyways, we just see a bit of Noah's heart here. Um, we see a human that's capable of putting God first. We haven't seen that really yet in the Bible. We haven't seen a human that says, I choose God over other things. Verse 21, and the, is this 22? No, this is still 21. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I gain, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. The Bible often talks about our nature. Humans are called dust. We're a vapor. We're weak. Um, we are petty. Um, and here we see a description. We are evil from our youth. The imagination of our heart. If you think back when you were a kid, what are some of the things you imagined? And they often had to do with you being the hero, you being at the middle of the story, or you getting more stuff. Or actually, 
evil imaginations. And I think God knows our heart. He knows what we thought when we were kids. And as young people, as young men and women, I think often our, our thoughts go astray and they shouldn't be. So the idea that man is evil from their heart is a theological claim that's being made here in Genesis 8 that's really distinct from a lot of other world religions where they say what's essentially inside humanity is a light of goodness and that all you need to do is tap into and purify back down to that good central humanity that's there. Um, and the Bible doesn't make that claim at all. The Bible says what's inside of humans is something kind of icky and evil and nasty and selfish. And that's a theological claim that makes the Christian church and the Judeo-Christian tradition truly unique out of a number of other world religions. That said, even though we're evil from their hearts, God's still going to make provisions. And in the Bible, we see this again and again and again. As weak as humans are, God's going to make provisions to help humans to be strong. And I love that when you get to the New Testament and Jesus unlocks or frees humanity from the burden and the chains of sin, that most of Jesus' teaching is teaching how the weak can be strong in the eyes of God how those that are peacemakers will take over the kingdom of God and rule and reign. So I think that idea of God taking and shaping and molding is one that's still underway because he's still going to, throughout the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, we're basically being shown a path by God on how to not be the evil in our youth and in our adulthood we grow into men and women of God. And that can be a really awesome thing. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and wheat, winter and summer, all the day and the night shall not cease. A lot of people think the seasons started right here in history. That something happened, the earth got tipped off its axis. Whatever caused the flood, now that we're done with the flood, people don't live as long. We now have these seasons. Um, winter and summer, cold and heat, seed time and harvest are times of life and death. There isn't this continuous year-long growth cycle. Uh, we now have cycles that start and stop. Um, and day and night shall not cease. We'll, we'll have this uh, cyclical world that we live in, and that's the world we see around us. I think of this as like a poetry or a style of song that you would teach your kids to remind them of the story of Noah. Um, and then we have the end of chapter 8. I'm going to go right into 9 tonight um, and knock off another two chapters. So verse 9 I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and, and multiply and fill the earth. Um, this is the same instruction he gave to Adam and Eve. So we do have a new beginning here where God's giving the same command to Noah and his sons as he gave to Adam, uh, which is to be fruitful and multiply. Noah then is to begin things again. Notice that with Noah, however, what we're going to see in chapter 9 is even Noah is not perfect and that sin came along with them on the ark and sin is still part of humanity after the ark so we don't exactly get a fresh start um the idea of filling the earth we'll want to come back to that when we get to the tower of babel because part of the sin of babel was they weren't filling the earth they were all congregating in one place and gathering humans to one spot so verse two and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on the beasts of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth 
and all the fish of the sea, they are given over into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. So God changes the rules after the flood. Now we have a new food source. Again, there's tons of things on that. Prior to the flood, remember Genesis 1.29, God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be food. That's not the case anymore. Now we add to all that the fish and the beasts and the birds that we can eat too. A couple thoughts for that. One is, if there's now winter and summer and cold and hot and seasons of growth and change, that means there's far less abundance of food after the flood than there was before the flood. Something about the world before the flood had people growing, living a lot longer, things growing larger according to the fossil record, and after the flood, we don't have that much growth and whatnot. So God opens up a new food source for humans, but I love the fact that at the beginning of verse 2 it says, and fear of you and the dread shall be on every beast of the earth. He also gives animals a fair shot at survival. So instead of just saying, here, deer, 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 and the deer walks over and bam, we kill it and eat it, most deer learn to run from humans. So God changes the game. Yes, you can eat the animals, but I'm also going to make it so the animals are scared of you. I think as God's grace and blessing, some of those animals we've tamed since the flood. And we've and I won't say one of the one of the animals names because I don't want him to stop being a good DOG. Um, but those animals have learned to live with humans again. And sometimes I'll look at the giant canine teeth in our golden retriever and I and I think to myself this thing was built for the wild like this he's not something that if I met in a forest I would I would be terrified um, if I met a wild version of this thing um, and I think that's the same can be true with you know larger versions of cats if I run into a mountain lion I'm not going here kitty kitty and thinking what a nice cat it is that cat's vicious um, so animals being um, having dread of humans make them either violent towards humans or they just run from humans. There's a fight or flight mechanism that all animals have towards humans, which is kind of interesting. God gives animal uh, animals this instinct that helps them to survive. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So again, God gives humans a limitation. You can eat of anything in the world now. I'm going to open up your options. But you can't eat stuff while it's still alive, and you got to cook it. So even today, we don't think this is such a weird thing because we, um, we live in a country that is Judeo-Christian, and we don't eat a lot of raw food. Um, but there are some religions, especially shamanistic religions or... Um, uh, smaller tribal religions that we've seen around the world where part of the religious rituals are to eat live blood-pumping animals and to pull things out. And from our kind of Judeo-Christian background, we kind of are repulsed by that. Notice, though, as we see more and more people in the world that are starting to toy with sin, what happens in our media, if we want to create something that's really cringeworthy, we create characters that eat flesh in this kind of disgusting way. So if you look out in the media, you see delicacies of raw meat being celebrated. We see stories with vampires and zombies, and we see these kinds of things which God has said are evil, that we shouldn't do that. 
Um, and we see that arise in those kinds of things. There's a practice here that comes out of it. So if the rule is don't eat things which are, are with its life in it still, um, then we have a couple practices that are pretty common to our culture when we eat meat. One is when you kill an animal, you're supposed to bleed out the blood, which is actually kind of a merciful way. If you have to kill an animal to eat it, you should kill it quick and you should bleed it out quick so that it doesn't have the blood going through it. And I think having just got back from a hunting trip, probably one of the hardest parts about hunting is when you don't get a clean kill and that animal has to suffer a little bit. I mean, it kind of breaks your heart and it's why some people don't like to hunt. Um, but if you're going to eat meat, you have to kill the animal. And we've um, make, when we kill animals, we try to do it as merciful as we can and as graceful as we can in part because of this rule. Um, two, we cook meat. We don't generally eat meat raw and there's very few meats that we don't cook. Uh, there's some fish that we eat raw and that's becoming more and more popular, but essentially a lot of fish doesn't have flowing blood going through it. It's a different kind of meat. Spiritually speaking, if there's a thing here, there's an association between blood and life that is the first of many that we're gonna see. Again, this is before the law, but even before the law is given in Leviticus, we see a certain respect for life here. Um, and blood is gonna be a representation for life. And God makes that happen throughout the word. Um, in fact, the next verse, if you look at verse five, the two words are even combined, lifeblood. God gives life and losing the blood from your system or an animal system is an indication of that life flowing out of someone. Dave Gusick does a wonderful word study on the word blood, and I'm just gonna flash through a bunch of references of the different ways that blood gets used throughout the Bible. Because we're talking about a word that gets used hundreds of times throughout the Bible. In Exodus 12, 13, blood's a sign of mercy at the Passover. Blood is signing God's covenant with Israel in Exodus 28, 24, verse 8. Blood sanctifies the altar when we give sacrifices, Exodus 29, 12. Blood sets aside the priests, Exodus 29, 20. Blood is an atonement or made into an atonement for God's people, Exodus 30, 10. In the New Testament, blood seals the new covenant in Matthew 26, 28. That's when Christ is crucified. Blood, Christ's blood justifies us, or justifies is just as if I never did it, in Romans 5, 9. You're welcome, hon. And blood brings redemption in Ephesians 1, 7. Blood brings us peace with God in Colossians 1, 20. Blood cleanses us in Hebrews 9:14 and 1 John 1 through 1 verse 7. Blood gives us entrance into the holy place, Hebrews 10:19. Blood sanctifies us, Hebrews 13:12. And blood, the blood of Christ enables us to overcome Satan in Revelation 12:11. God institutes a government structure in this kind of situation. Verse 5 says, "Surely for your life blood I will demand a reckoning. And from the hand of every beast, I'll require it, and from the hand of man. So when someone takes a life, when someone takes lifeblood from another person, God's going to demand that that's reckoned. So this is not yet in the law for the Jews, but in just the law of the universe, um, that if even a human, if from the hand of every beast, I'll require a reckoning, right? and from the hand of man. So even if humans bite 
are bitten by an animal or an animal kills a human being, um, we still today put that animal down because we don't want animals to get in the habit of eating humans. So there's a reckoning or a capital punishment that gets dished out for animals when they hurt humans. Um, and the rest of verse five, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man's blood, he shall be shed for the image of God he made man. In other words, God establishes capital punishment for humans. If a human kills another human and takes their lifeblood, their lifeblood should be taken. Uh, and that's the proper reckoning. So God establishes a rule for this new era of humanity, and that is you should respect life. You should not take human life. And God's going to put a mark on people, um, or this respect for, for, for blood, which is interesting. So at the same time God says there should be capital punishment for people that murder, he also gives at the end of verse 6, for in the image of God he made man, he gives this deep respect for life at the same time he says murderers should be killed. It's an interesting opposition or, uh, or, or contrast that God does in this verse where he's creating a capital punishment, but he's also establishing the reason for that capital punishment is because man's life has value. And you don't just take somebody's life. Interesting that today we see both of those issues, which might even seem in contrast, people flipping that and taking the opposite position. They're against capital punishment, but they're okay with things like euthanasia, abortion, or even persecution of people on the planet. And that those things in the flip go together. You'd think as humans, we would either say it's okay to kill or it's not okay to kill. But seemingly those two arguments are always in contrast to each other, even when you take the other side. So you see people that are okay with capital punishment and don't like things like euthanasia and abortion. And then we see people that are okay with abortion and euthanasia that don't like capital punishment, which is a really interesting thing. So in this instance, God gives his rationale. A criminal has made a decision, but the respect for life is the underlying foundation. And the rationale for capital punishment is that that person didn't respect what God had made. But when you take God out of the equation, that formula doesn't necessarily work anymore. Essentially, in order to take someone's life in capital punishment, you have to determine that they murdered. And you, to do that, you need a court system. So most uh, commentators in the Bible see this as the very beginning of human government. This is a rule that has to have a system in place to carry it out. So you need a human government of some sort to make this kind of thing happen. And ultimately, government should be there to respect life or protect the value and quality of life in, in a society, which is, I think, what our founding fathers were trying to get at when they said life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. The right to life is the foundation of human government, including our government that we live in today. Verse seven, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Uh, so two commands here, it's easy to patch these together. One is to bring forth abundantly and the other is to multiply. Obviously the multiply is to make babies and build families. So one side of our existence under Noah is to make families and to work on that family. But to bring forth abundantly I, was something I kind of stuck on. We're also supposed, I think there's different ways that we bring forth or we bring abundance. We can work at things, we can farm, we can build things, we make things. 
for us as humans to abound and, th and thrive, I think we need to be fruitful with our time. So one form of fruitfulness is to multiply on the earth, and that's the family side. But the other side is to bring forth abundantly, is to work and bring fruit out of our lives too. So God gives us both kinds of things. I think there's a great majesty and a holy work for any human being to build a healthy family and to work and to consecrate both of those things to the Lord. And we see people throughout the Bible that that's what they're doing. I think of Jesus as dad. What an honor to raise Jesus, right? But here's a guy who worked as a carpenter and built a strong family. And that he is recorded for all time in God's records because he was a family man and he, and he worked his job his whole life. But he didn't go out ministering with Jesus. He kind of provided for the family and actually made it so Jesus could do his ministry. What a great honor in doing that. For all of the heroes of the Bible, you have to think, who is the dad that made that possible or trained that young man up so that he could be a strong young man and go out into the world and do things? For all the heroines in the Bible, you got to think, who's the mom that trained her in, right? Where's the family that she came from and how did she learn uh, to serve and love the Lord like she did? And those strong families are part of what God sees in multiplication, I think, um, is that you're, you're, he's asking Noah to build that worldview that Noah has into his kids too. But he's going to fail, and we'll see that in a little bit, as we all fall short of the glory of God. So at the start of the chapter, we see kind of a closing out of this narrative here, right? And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. It seems like it's kind of the end at the end of verse 7. I actually think verse 9 should have started at verse, or chapter 9 should have started at verse 8, because it seems like verse 7 is kind of the end of that narrative with Noah getting off the ark. And verse 8 starts with the word then, which starts kind of a new chapter and a new thing. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with them. And by the way, most of this I'm just going to read because it kind of speaks for itself. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish... Oh, and as for me, notice that he just got done saying what? As for Noah and as for this and as for that. But now it's here's what God's going to do, right? Noah started by doing the altar and now God's saying, here's what I'm going to do. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark and every beast on the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, to say that there's a regional flood is to say that God's not telling the truth. You have to deal with these verses because God says all flesh cut off by the waters of the flood. In other words, the flood flooded the whole planet, and that's the claim the Bible's making. It's hard to get around that claim biblically. So God sets a new covenant, a Noahic covenant, uh, and he's simply promising with this covenant that he's not going to flood the earth again. He doesn't say that he won't destroy the earth, but he says, I won't flood it. So I'll find other creative ways to destroy the earth if I'm going to do it again. For, uh, 2 Peter 3 says there's going to be judgment by fire. There will be a disillusion of the atom or fire will cover the whole planet. Um, and there's, for thousands of years, that seemed like an impossibility. But we live in an era where that's not impossible at all. We know exactly, we even have the technology to make that happen. Um, which I hope that means we're getting close to the end. Um, 
God's going to establish a lot of covenants. There's the Adam's covenant, Noah's covenant. He's going to have a covenant with Abraham. He's going to have a covenant with Noah and Jacob um, and Israel. So we're going to see throughout the Old Testament, God makes these promises to humans. Um, and he keeps his promises. In verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy the earth. I like how he, it, in verse 15 it says, I will remember. When there's a rainbow, it's for me to remember or me to consider. Because remember, God made the decision to destroy the earth. He got so sick of humans that he said, all right, I'm just going to take no one. I'm going to wipe this thing out. Um, and I, I think it's kind of an interesting, again, an anthropomorphism that God's going to consider that he's being patient when he sees a rainbow. We've taken a rainbow to be this sign of hope and blessing and whatnot, but it's actually a sign of God's deciding not to slaughter us all. And, and, it, and, and you'd think in the Christian worldview, a rainbow, a rainbow should remind us of our sin, and we should be reminded that we deserve to be flooded out again because the world has gone to a way where we don't serve God. Um, but it's more of a reminder for God that he's going to hold off on that. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look up on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all the flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. So God's loving on the animals again, too. It's not just with Noah. <clears throat> So the rainbow we now know is a wonderful kind of practice in science. Again, using water, which we know defies science in some interesting ways. But if you get enough mist in the air and a sunbeam shines through that mist, sun being a break in the clouds that just made a rainstorm happen, but there's still enough moisture in the air. And that moisture has to be thick enough to be in kind of mist drops, that each of those drops acts like a prism and based on the angle that it hits the thing and where you're standing, the whole arc of those drops will form a, a, a prism to where different lights shine through different raindrops in different places. So at this angle, it's blue, and at that angle, it's yellow. At that angle, it's red. You think of the precision and miracle that it takes for our eye to see the light being broken out in those different directions, and millions of little prisms having the sun hit at a slightly different angle makes it so that that arch comes right up over our eye line in a perfect order. Um, and I think it's just kind of a something God made in the reality of existence that doesn't seem to have any purpose to it other than it's beautiful. And God's covenant with us, likewise, spiritually speaking, is beautiful. There's no reason why God should love us. There's no purpose why the God of the universe would adore us. And to make something beautiful for us that should remind us that we have not chosen him, it should be a reminder of maybe the covenant that we broke, or it could be a reminder that Noah's first thing he did is he made an altar. That the proper reaction to God after a disaster in our life should be to praise the Lord, because the disaster didn't kill us. The proper reaction to us when we, un when we go through tragedy is that we're still here and we still have a chance to be in relationship with God. 
And the proper thing that we should do is to sacrifice to God our own lives, give it to him, and give him a sweet aroma because he gave us great scenery. You know, and so rainbows serve today. It's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, there's not an entirely a fresh start here with Noah because sin's still in our nature. And as soon as this beautiful image of the rainbow's over, we the next story is that we are still with sin. So the people that got off the ark, they're still sinners. And we're going to see this consistent pattern throughout the Bible of these people that fall short of the glory of God, but God still gracefully and mercifully works with them. And I hope he does, because then there's hope for me. Verse 18, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark, there were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Odd little thing to throw in there until we get to the new story um, that Canaan was Ham's kid. Canaan will later see is not the oldest son of Ham, so this isn't his his oldest. It's it, it's somewhere down the line. Um, so why point out Canaan here? And we'll see in a second. Verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer. He planted a vineyard, and then he drank of the wine, and he was drunk, and he became uncovered in his tent. So Noah's laying around naked in his tent. People try to excuse Noah here. I think the point is, because we just got done with the rainbow and this good thing that Noah did, and that it was a sweet aroma to God, that God's still tolerating that Noah's a sinner too. So some people say, well, how would Noah have known that it was alcoholic? And I think that's stupid because grape juice and wine taste very different. Noah would have thought, oh, this is rotten grape juice. I should throw it away. But no, he drank enough of it to get inebriated. So I also think there was lots of technology before the flood. Noah's not dumb, but he wants himself some alcohol. He might have drinking a lot of alcohol because to preserve food on the ark for a year, a lot of those liquids might have gone to alcohol, especially the high sugar liquids. And it could be that Noah's a full-on alcoholic and he just is out of alcohol, so he grows his own. Um, and in growing vineyards, you're not exactly providing for your family because you're too busy getting alcohol in your life. I'm not here to call Noah an alcoholic. These are possible interpretations, right? But either way you look at this, it's pretty hard to avoid the idea that the way the Bible's writing this is that drinking the wine's not the problem. It's that he drank the wine and he got drunk. And the getting drunk part is the part where your dignity is robbed of you. And it's not necessarily that alcohol is this huge evil thing, right? And that's part of what we've said to our kids. When you get to be of alcohol age, let's go out and have a drink so that you don't elevate alcohol to this level of awesomeness that creates alcoholics. It's just a beverage. The problem with the beverage is drinking too much, too fast, and knowingly getting yourself inebriated, which creates excuses to sin or even creates alcoholism in you, which just destroys you from the inside out. In this case for Noah, he's embarrassingly laid out naked in his tent, but that's not the worst of the story. Because So not only does Noah have some sin in his life, in verse 22, and then there's Ham. Again, the father of Canaan gets thrown in there. But Canaan's not the one looking in the tent, it's Ham. And Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Shem and Japheth. When it says saw, then it's not that he just went, oops, and saw his dad naked. That happens to every kid in the universe, I think, at some point in their childhood. Because you're living in the same tent, you're hanging out in the same place. Um, it just, I think, happens. 
The problem is, and I think the word saw here in the Hebrew is a lot stronger word. He sat and looked at his dad and stared at him. And this is a 600-year-old man. I'm thinking Noah was, it's not like a sexual thing where he's staring at his dad, but he's just staring at him. And then the reaction shows a little bit of what was in Ham's heart. He goes to get his brothers and says, come over here, dad's naked, look at him. So he's mocking his dad, right? He's doing a thing where he's disrespecting his dad. And instead of taking care of his dad in his drunkenness, he's gonna try to humiliate and mock his dad. So there's a heart issue here with Ham that's kind of sick and it's coming right off the ark, right? Didn't take long for sin to come back. What kind of world do you live in where you can't trust your own family to ridicule you behind your back? And there's something broken here with Ham in that instead of taking care of each other, he's trying to make himself elevate himself at the expense of somebody else, which is essentially that selfishness is kind of the heart of sin. And it just keeps rearing its ugly serpent head. But Shem and Japheth, verse 23, took a garment, laid it on the both of their shoulders, and went away backward and covered the nakedness of their father. So Shem and Japheth have a certain respect and regard for the people in their homes, their family, their friends, their father. And instead of humiliating Noah, they go in and they cover Noah up. And they even turn their backs to do this. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So instead of going in with Ham and becoming mockers and scoffers, they actually do the opposite and do the right thing. Verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done for him. So either Noah was cognizant enough that he remembered that it happened or God told him or there was some sort of miracle like he knew prophetically and then he said catch this cursed be Canaan wait a second Ham was the guy that was being the weasel why does his son get cursed and not only that it's not his eldest son even it's just a son of Ham gets cursed because Ham was being weird so this is in quotes then he said the only reason for this is because Noah's speaking prophetically. And he's saying something that doesn't sound right to us when we read through this, but we'll see historically, and I'll point it out in a sec, this is actually exactly what happens. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Not cursing him is kind of an odd thing here. In verse 26, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth, Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. So they're going to, as brothers, they're going to keep going together and may Canaan be his servant. So we have a proclamation for Kamek here. And there, it's interesting because of, in the next chapter, when we come back next week, we're going to get into uh, chapter 10 is kind of the chapter of nations. It's how all the nations get formed on the earth. Two of those nations are Hamitic that actually keep the Jews as servants, which is the Egyptians and the Babylonians are Hamitic civilizations. But other Hamitic civilizations are the Canaanites, which dwell in the Holy Land, that when Moses comes out of the Holy Land is going to come and conquer the Canaanites. So a lot of this prophecy is people simply, Noah basically is saying, here's what's going to happen. And also this idea of like, I think Noah just sees the kind of personality that Ham has and Canaan has. Sometimes in very young kids, you can kind of see if they're going to be troublemakers or not. So 
sometimes in very young dogs, you can tell if they're just troublemakers or not. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can say, you know, this is going to be what happens with you. You're just going to always have a lifetime of trouble. And that's kind of, I think, what's going on with Noah here. He's not necessarily even chastising Ham. He's just saying, you know, this kind of nonsense that you do, you're just going to always be people's servants. You're always going to be the lesser because you're always, you're mocking and you're scoffing and you're not putting in the work and you're not building good families. And Ham, your son Canaan, he's a mess. And this is why. It's because you do stuff like this. You're not a good father. And I'm putting a lot of things into there, but then we kind of see that this happens. Later on in the Old Testament, in Joshua 9 in particular, verse 19, Joshua's fooled. So Joshua's supposed to be slaughtering the Canaanites. They've had a chance to repent. They've had a chance to come back to the Lord. They don't do it. So God, the people of Israel start moving in and they start slaughtering the Canaanites that have given themselves to idol worship. Uh, they're, they're once again being doing sinful things and they're violent. Um, and one of those groups, the Gibeonites, trick Joshua. And they, they come back and um, they bring old bread with them and pretend like they've come from very far away. And they ask for a peace treaty with Joshua. And Joshua says, how do I know you're not a Canaanite? And they, well, look at how old our food is. Look at how we've our water bottles are cracked and dry. And we've traveled a great long distance. And he tricks Joshua. So Joshua vows a covenant with them that he won't kill them, um, even though he's supposed to, according to God, claim that land. The solution is the Canaanites become the servants of the Jews. And this prophecy of Noah's, which seems really odd with Canaan, actually becomes true. The only Canaanites left are the ones that are serving the Jewish people when they come back into the land. And I'll read that to you, Joshua 9:19. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. God, it matters what covenants you make. Verse 21, And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. So this last remaining group of Canaanites become servants of the Jewish people. Back to Genesis, verse 28. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. He gets to be a pretty old geezer. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Again, that, and I think we already talked about this, that means that Noah would have been alive almost to the time of Abraham. And Seth and Abraham would have hung out for 75 years together. So there would have been really only one handoff of the scrolls. Um, Seth would have got them from Noah and he would have handed them off to Abraham. And all those other generations, uh, you know, what happened before the flood uh, would have been written down and it would have been easily within a generation handed off to Abraham. Uh, and they wouldn't have had to, you know, play the, play the game of communicating it to one another. So all the days of Noah were 950 years. And like all the people before him other than Enoch, Noah dies too. He sinned, there's problems with Noah, and, and he's going to die as part of the curse, just like all the other people we're going to see all the way up through Elijah and Jesus. There's three people that haven't died. 
chapter 10 then we're going to get on to Seth uh, organizing we think chapter 10 because this is where Noah dies this is the end of another one of those scrolls so we see this finish and as we start with chapter 10 we're starting with a scroll that probably would have been Seth's scroll to write um, and or he spoke and, and Abraham would have collected those stories and gathered it so we're moving from Adam's scrolls to Noah's scrolls this is would have been the end of Noah's scrolls we're going to start in on what we think would be Seth's scrolls with chapter 10 in that sense of all of this I kept thinking today and, and I think what's stuck in my head with all these chapters is how important it is that we make covenants with God and the beginning of our walk with Christ is the same as it was with Noah it's turning to God after all the troubles in our life the turbulence in our life, seeing how our life has turned out in a giant flood of all this other nonsense, and then coming to God and saying, God, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to sacrifice the precious things that I have, the things that I think are important, and I'm just going to give them over to you. Because we don't want to be ravens. We want to be doves. We want to return to and come back to the love of God because he made us and created us for that purpose. And that idea of sacrificing or making a covenant and how important these covenants are to God, how these things get said and hundreds of years later, God sees them through to completion. And in anything that we do and say, the only thing we really have to give to God is the life that he gave to us in the first place. And in that sense, we're not giving that much at all. It wasn't ours to give. Um, we're just acknowledging that God gave us that life in the first place. And we say, I'm here to do what you want me to do. And we live in concert with God. It's the thing that was a sweet savor to Noah back then, and it's still the thing that's a sweet savor to God today. It's when a soul turns themselves to God and says, I love you, I'm going to give you my whole life. And I also think that's the beginning of where God starts a new story, which is where we'll go on. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your grace and your love. Lord, we thank you that we can sin, we can fall short, we can be selfish. We can think of our own needs. We can scoff and mock, Lord, but we can turn to you and ask for forgiveness. And Lord, we're justified in the blood of Jesus Christ in the same way with Noah that he gave up something. He gave up the life of his animals uh, and the Lord saw that that was good. It's good that we as humans give up our own lives to serve you. That the blood of Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins. It covered our sins. It took care of it. Because God is eternal, the blood of Jesus Christ is also an eternal sacrifice. And for all of humanity that we call on you and we love you and we say we'll give you our lives, Lord, we don't have to bleed ourselves because you've already bled for us. And you've taken that sin and you've thrown it as far as the east is from the west. Lord, the choice is no different today. We can choose the life of Jesus Christ or we can choose the rotting flesh of this world. And there's no, there's no true distinction between that and the choice that Adam and Eve had and the choice that Noah had, Lord. And we choose you. Um, we bow before you and we study your holy word. Lord, what an amazing thing that we can open up your word and we can see what you have to say to us. And then each of these stories, Lord, you're communicating to us historical truths, but you're also communing to us these spiritual truths about who we are and what we're doing. Lord, we just want to serve you. Teach us as humble humans to do that, um, not to strive with this world, Lord, 
but to love you. In Jesus' name. Oops.